You're listening to Fuller Curated, a podcast of the best conversations happening at Fuller. So just so that we can see the nice uh, title slide, I'm going to only show slides occasionally throughout, but this is the focus and title of this lecture, Insights from Worship, Relationships and Struggle, Strength for Our Journey. I want to acknowledge my family of origin, my grandmother, my parents, for their investment in our early education, which was quite a financial sacrifice, but uh, they did that and that definitely is paid off. And my twin brother, as well as my older brother, and then also my family of choice, Linda, my best friend and her family, and that includes my goddaughter, Karis Joy Wright. I wanna also acknowledge some particular mentors who have been, taught me important lessons um, related to pain and discouragement. And you'll understand why I'm highlighting them in a moment as we proceed. But my first formal teachers, uh, Madame Frédéric Robert, taught me French from first grade through ninth grade, nine years with her. And I learned not only the language, but about the culture and her experience too in World War II related to the sequelae of that. Then Dr. James Jones of the Minority Fellowship Program, um, Dr. Dorothy Evans Holmes, and that's the APA, American Psychological Association, Minority Fellowship Program. He advocated for me and supported me. Dr. Evans Holmes, who was the director of our uh, internship training program and an analyst. Coming closer to home, Dr. Winston Gooden, who was the former dean of the School of Psychology. My choral director at church, Dr. Diane White-Clayton, who taught me so much about worship. And then Dr. David Allen, a Bahamian psychiatrist who you will hear more about. I also wanna thank my colleagues who patiently supported me with grace and love and have also challenged me. And above all, my students who have helped stretch me into new horizons and particularly in this domain that I'm describing, the aspects of our spiritual experience that are more painful. They have really pressed me into that direction and I'm forever grateful for that. So I'll continue with the story. I studied classical music, piano, studied piano from about five years old through college. And during my college years, I was in a piano competition, a national one, and it was at St. John the Divine Cathedral in New York City. This is an incredible cathedral, famous. And I remember walking in and I heard another contestant playing. And the passion and the pathos and pain, you know, the fierceness in which he was playing, I knew immediately I'm first not going to win this contest, <laughs> this competition. But secondly, there's no way I have experienced that kind of tragedy and pain. So I brought passion to my playing. I play really uh, played because I loved it. It came more out about it, this beautiful place, so this joyful place, this romantic place, but I could not connect with that depth of pain 
I knew at that point, my life had not had enough tragedy and pain, but that was a story I, I was telling myself. The truth was I had experienced pain, loneliness, sadness, and anger. I had, didn't have major tragedies, but I was covering up my pain to the extent that I was in denial and not even in touch with it. It's as if it didn't even exist. I know I'm not alone in this. Some things we do as individuals, families, communities, and nations is to cover up and deny pain. At the point of accepting Christ, a critical shift was, and this happened during college, that the Lord helped me face some of my pain and face that truth. On the one hand, I've experienced great joy and transformation through my experiences in my church community. I have lifetime friendships from connections formed in church and Christian fellowships. The joy of the Lord has absolutely been my strength. I could give many lectures on joy. And yet, given the task, if you have only one more lecture to give, what would that be on? I am raising a lament. Our tendency as a people, church, and nation to deny pain and tragedy, to avoid and even obscure the truth, undermines our ability to grow from pain and to pursue justice. Our inability to fully engage with worshiping in spirit and in truth, to more fully embrace our hidden selves in our relationships, to engage in a reckoning with racism and the true history of the United States, and to draw strength from these challenges has undermined our ability to be witness of witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to have a redemptive influence in the world. Joy is important, but given our neglect and avoidance of pain, we need to lean even more into this season with truth. This need shows up everywhere, but particularly in our worship relationships and struggle. So in this last lecture, I wanna share some things that we've learned from researching and my own participation in Christian corporate worship. What I've learned from relationships personally and from facilitating interpersonal relationships and groups. And what I've learned from spiritual struggle and the struggle for social justice and equity. And finally, a few nuggets that have given me strength for the journey. In conducting research on corporate worship, worshiping at church and singing in our church choirs, sacred praise chorale, I would argue that the critical factor that contributes to spiritual transformation, we know it's the power of the Holy Spirit, God's presence in our lives, but from a leadership standpoint would be yielded leaders. Not perfect leaders. Many leaders, Christian leaders, are trying to be perfect, but it's yielded leaders 
Leaders who increasingly submitted to God and fulfilling his purpose, not their own. Leaders who share their own struggles and suffering and how God has met them in the midst of this. So let's focus on worship for a moment. The verb worship, pruskuneo, means to prostrate oneself, to bow down to reverence. Evelyn Underhill goes further, described it as a developmental process. In prayer, we come to God because we need him. In worship, I come to adore his splendor and fling myself and all that I have at his feet, she says. She goes on to say that worship purifies, enlightens, and at last transforms every life submitted to its influence. It does all this because it wakes up and liberates that seed of supernatural life in virtue of which we are spiritual beings capable of responding to that God who is spirit. So it's like God enlivens, awakens our spirit. Romans 12, one and two, the NIV version. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, pleasing, and perfect will. Well, what does transformation look like? In our studies, one of the things we found in two particular things, it's renewed minds and renewed relationships. We did a study that was funded by the John Templeton Foundation where we conducted interviews and even psychophysiological um, assessment of African-American, Caucasian, Korean, and Latinx congregants from Pentecostal and Presbyterian churches. One of the things we found that contributed transformation was worship provided insight that was associated with affective, relational, and behavioral change. Well, what did this mean? People often brought troubled lives to worship. And then they heard something that not only moved them emotionally, but they learn something. They learn something about forgiveness, about grace, about mercy that contributed to them being more collaborative, more gracious, more forgiving. So then we did another study of worship leaders, exemplars, to try to understand, and this was 26 of them, to try to understand what's occurring in the preparation process for worship leaders that might contribute to this kind of transformation. Well, John Whitley, the colleague at um, the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, he talks about one of the challenges with worship leaders is that many of them are highly talented musically, highly talented performers who can easily internalize praise and attention that they receive in a self-aggrandizing way. So they're puffing themselves up or they start to believe, if you will, the hype, the energy that comes toward them that's counter to the goal of worship. 
which would be glorifying God. So the temptation is to follow the pattern of the world, to not be transformed, not renewed in their mind, bodies not submitted to God and filled with ego of oneself. So what did we find that was counter to that, that was different for that, from that, that made all the difference? We call it God-centric engagement, which is a fancy way of describing, well, what were these worship leaders focus? I will share a couple of direct quotes and share my screen here so that you can see this. What were some of the things they said? In those moments when we're singing about the skies, declare the glory of God or something like that, I'm reminded of a scripture that was about that or how creation speaks of the glory of God. So I think it's about being in a relationship with God throughout the week and really saturated in the word. And in the morning of on Sunday, it's not about me. It's not even about my performance. What did another person say? Speaking to their formation and the disciplines that lead to what occurs. Before I come over here, I'm on my knees in my home, in my private place, just appreciating what God's allowing me to do. The position he's put me in, praying that he be glorified, you know, get me out of the way. You know, just saying, God, use me in any way you want today. And you know, that can be scary at times because you never know what's going to happen. But use me and give it to him. Now, another important dimension was the role of lament and struggle. I think my own transparency in worship and my own struggle to worship, I think, gives people the freedom to be honest in their own struggle to worship. And they think in the moments we're unable to authentically worship God, I think that spirit comes through and people are inspired to also turn their hearts in worship as well towards God. When I can focus my own attention on what is really inspiring my worship, what are the truths about God, that really calls out from my core a response of worship. Part of what even this quote highlights is something that Song Chao-Ra has described in his book, Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times. He notes that worship that arises out of suffering cries out for deliverance. Lament is the language of suffering. I would argue that the ability to express our truth related to lament and suffering is not only important in worship and in our relationship with God, and often a missing element, but it's also important in our relationships with one another. We need relationships that can hold painful truth, heal, and restore. How do relationships do this? Well, Randy Sorensen was a beloved psychologist and training analyst who definitely died too soon. He frequently noted that integration is caught 
more than taught. He's describing this from faculty to student, but I would say to heart to heart too. So what is caught? What I would highlight is this, you're catching an incarnational presence. The spirit of the Lord in someone else is reverberating. What's also caught can be a yielded spirit. We have the opportunity to see and experience someone who was in tuned into God, and that helps us be more tuned into God. Now we have a field, an area of study that different disciplines are actually thinking about these days called embodied cognition. Well, the idea of embodied cognition, it's not just what you're thinking, that includes what you're feeling. But the main notion is that cognitive representations, what's represented cognitively, includes our mind, emotions, and the physical context. So Niedenthal gives a intuitive example of this using empathy. Understanding another person's emotional state comes from mentally recreating this person's feelings in ourselves. Now, let me give another example from music. How is music transformational? Well, Justin and Vosfall describe emotional contagion as a process where an emotion that might be induced in a piece of music, it's because the listener perceives the emotional expression of the music, then mimics this expression internally. And that leads to an induction of the same emotion. So if I feel and see your sadness in the in music as you're singing, I'm connecting, I perceive that, and then I mimic that sadness as I'm seeing you portray it. Now, those who have looked at sound take this even further. They say, if you're trying to understand sound, you have to understand not only the people or persons producing the sound, you need to understand who's hearing the sound and the social context and acoustical context in which both production and hearing occur. Now we have this word we love in psychology, at least I love it, <laughs> intersubjectivity. And basically it means stuff is going in all directions, up, down, around, through, in. And one way that Dunn and Jones have coined this is there's an intersubjective acoustic space that has all these multiple influences. But if you're trying to understand what something means, you need to not only hear the sound in an auditory way, not only feel the sound emotionally, but the social context on which, in which it arises. Now, if this context is a spiritual, redemptive space that includes suffering, that's part of what I'm saying we're missing very much in our churches. And some relationships have capacity for this, but not enough. And I'm saying beyond our therapeutic relationships. But suppose this social context included a focus on justice then how would it be if not only worship leaders, but seminary professors, Christian therapists, 
the body of Christ were embodying more a focus on suffering and justice. If we, it's not necessarily we get more comfortable with it in a certain way, but we realize it is vital to our survival, growth, and development, and just not a period like a very difficult period like the dark night of the soul. We're talking ongoing. These are the cycles of our lives. Part of being tuned in then to justice would require bearing the pain of injustice. I'll share an example of a leader who's a therapist who's helping a community bear the pain of injustice. Dr. David Allen is a Bahamian psychiatrist who's a Christian, and he integrates spiritual practices in his groups. He even sings. He'll sing Negro spirituals, and that is what they're called, even though it's old world word for Black folks. <laughs> Negro spirituals, like sometimes I'm a motherless, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. He uses meditation and scripture in community-based groups to foster resocialization and interrupt the negative cycle of violence that has plagued Bahamian society following the cocaine epidemic. Well, let me give you a little image of what has happened there. There's been societal fragmentation in the Bahamas the drug crisis, economic downturn, downturn, then increased violence, gang formation, lack of respect for property. Family was highly valued in the society. And then that changed related to all of these things. So what Dr. Allen saw in that was shame, shame that often resulted in destructive behavior the fragmentation of the community. And so he developed these groups that are called the family to liberate people from this negativity of shame, to move toward experiencing love, gratitude, and forgiveness, and to move toward constructive community. We've written an article together where he describes a vignette. So I want to share this story, this experience that happened in the group. Many people in the family have experienced either murder, violent attack, or abuse of a loved one. As a result, revenge is a major issue in the family and may include wanting the perpetrator killed or his family killed. A young woman visited the family and after sitting quietly for a while, she shared that her only sister had been murdered by her husband. As the group listened attentively, she said, I'm angry and I want revenge. My sister is dead and I have the responsibility of now caring for all of her children. Suddenly she stopped and said, this is too painful. I can't talk about it. As the group waited in silence, the facilitator, who was Dr. Allen, asked if she would join him in a role play in which she, he would act as her sister's husband. 
After much reluctance, she finally agreed. The woman and facilitator moved into the center of the group. As the facilitator looked at her, she screamed, I hate you, I hate you. You killed my sister. You are an animal and I hope you suffer the rest of your life. Do you know that you destroyed our whole family? We knew that you were no good for her. You always tried to keep her from us. You would never let her come to our family gatherings. Now she's gone and I wish you were dead. Then she suddenly stopped. Looking intently at the facilitator, she said, if you are bad enough, come on out on bail and you'll see what happens. Shocked and confused, the group again became silent as she wept profusely, shaking her head in disbelief and pain. The group ended and people slowly and reverently left, saying goodbye to her. The woman expressed to the facilitator that she felt relieved at being able to release her pent up feelings. She was visibly shaking. Thanking her for coming, the facilitator responded, letting go of painful revenge feelings takes time, patience, and it's a long, long journey. Now in discussing this, this interaction allowed the facilitator become, to become a repository for this woman's anger and frustration and rage. She was able to both express her anger and her desire for revenge in a safe and supportive place. The leader modeled a secure presence for her to express her anger and her sadness. While the intensity of these feelings may have scared her and other members and us, <laughs> the group was able to bear the intensity of this pain. The facilitator didn't resolve these feelings, but offered compassion, hope, and perspective that the process of healing is a journey. This modeling was important as other members had similar feelings and were encouraged that the group, particularly the leader, could handle the intensity of their affect. The collective reverent response of the members also conveyed a sense of solidarity in this pain. So the member was able to experience universality as she became aware that she was not alone in her feelings. That ends this segment from that article. Clearly, this is a therapeutic context and group that creates new space for healthier relationships that bear pain on the journey toward healing. Supportive groups in our churches and communities that are led by skilled leaders can provide in this kind of invaluable support, growth, and healing. On a smaller level, to what extent could any of these feelings 
be confided in close relationships, in our close, intimate relationships? Can we share our own desires for revenge and retaliation? Can we be honest about our anger, our rage, our fears, our loss? Can we face these uncomfortable feelings instead of burying them or acting out? Let's now look at these questions in the context of spiritual struggle and then the larger struggle for social justice. Part of my struggle spiritually often is how is God allowing the horrible things that are happening in our world, even right now? So part of spiritual struggle would be spaces that provide room for a multivalence, positive and negative emotions, expression that includes our anger, experience of hurt and offense. That's critical to deepening and challenging our faith. One important dimension of this would be when we feel distant from or even abandoned by God. This is important in and of itself as we cry out to God. But the opportunity to journey with others through this pain, priceless. Students frequently share that after I've shared my own spiritual struggles, and we do have a formational class, formation group, and integrative practice group where we do engage this as well as other spaces. When I have shared my own spiritual struggles, they finally feel they have permission to share their own anger and frustration at God, as well as their doubts. The professor's willingness to be vulnerable and take a risk invites their own sharing. They feared that this dimension of their lives would not be welcome or understood at a seminary or in their church community or in their family or even with their friends. Professors from all disciplines had the opportunity to normalize spiritual struggle by sharing some of our unanswered questions as well as our past and current struggles with God. This can be powerfully formational as it allows us to be authentic about where we are in our journey and it deepens our capacity to be an embodied incarnational presence and empathic container for this pain. This is depicted in a lovely way by one of my former students Asha Reagan and her co-authors here. Her chapter, I love this title, Dance and Transformation, Praising Through Brokenness to Holiness in Worship. Here she notes, for African-Americans, worship dance was an evangelizing testimony that accused slave masters. It was also a cry to God for help and a battle cry for his justice that led to healing from brokenness and deliverance from oppression, turning slaves mourning into dancing. Their worship dancing was not only an expression of black souls breaking free, but was also a means of spiritually, relationally, 
and socially reconfiguring the external imposed boundaries of oppression and restraints. What are some of my unanswered questions of God? Just look at what we've been through in 2020. But for Black folks and other people of color for centuries. But my question to our God is, when does a violence against Black bodies stop? When, Lord? And as I've listened to members in these Bahamian groups share their stories of violence and abuse, and as we witness the violence toward Black lives, our Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters experience anti-racist discrimination, especially now related to COVID, the accelerated death rates of Latinx and Native American peoples to COVID. I'm outraged. The death and violence is horrific. Complicity in perpetuating, perpetuating policies and procedures that result in these health disparities, police violence, and death is unacceptable. My spiritual struggle includes questions of God. How can you allow this? Where are you? Why does this keep on happening? It's as if there's a repetition compulsion. And what do I mean by that? Where some people are engaging in a harmful behavior in an effort to avoid an even more profound truth that is scary. Well, the examination of the painful truth actually helps. So let me create for a moment an imagined dialogue between Willie Jennings, who's on our board of trustees and also a professor of systematic theology and Africana studies at Yale Divinity School, and his mentee, who has just joined the faculty here at Fuller, Sonjun Ra, who is the Robert Munger Professor of Evangelism. And in responding to the question, how did we get here? Where Song Shan Ra would start with this in his book, Unsettled Truths, the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery. He would say, and I quote, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. That process is known as stealing, conquering, or colonizing. The fact that America calls what Columbus did discovery reveals the implicit racial bias of the country, that Native Americans are not fully human. Then Willie Jennings would enter in with his book after whiteness and education and belonging. White self-sufficient masculinity is not first a person or a people. It is a way of organizing life with ideas and forming a persona that distorts identity and strangles the possibilities of a dense life together. In this regard, my use of the term whiteness does not refer to people of European descent, but to a way of being in the world and seeing the world 
that forms cognitive and affective structures able to seduce people into its habitation and its meaning making. He goes on to say, people groups have always existed, but it's not until the modern colonial moment that those peoples were forced to think of themselves in troubled togetherness of race, religion, and nation in a world being stolen, privatized, segmented, segregated, commoditized, and bordered. We inherited these troubles. Song John Ra would then come back with the sin of doctrine of discovery is the determination that the full expression of the image of God is found only in certain races. It gave theological permission for the European body and mind to view themselves as superior to the non-European body and minds. The doctrine created an insider perception for the European while generating an outside other identity for non-Europeans. It created an identity for African bodies as inferior and only worthy of subjugation. It also relegated the identity of the original inhabitants of the land discovered to become outsiders now unwelcome in their own land. Song John Ra concludes in prophetic lament, true reconciliation, justice and shalom require a remembering of suffering and unearthing of a shameful history and a willingness to enter into lament. Lament calls for an authentic encounter with the truth and challenges privilege because privilege would hide the truth that creates discomfort. I want your eyes to just rest for a moment on this quote from Ida B. Wells was an African-American journalist, abolitionist, and feminist who led an anti-lynching crusade in the United States in the 1890s. Wise words. The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. We know 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin sin and will heal their land. So what gives me strength for this journey, this painful journey I'm encouraging us to focus more on? Well, the most recent inspirational thing that's happened for me was Amanda Gorman, the National Youth Poet Laureate at Biden's administration. I'm going to just share a couple of excerpts from her poem, The Hill We Climb. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We brave the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. 
and the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. We are striving to forge a union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man and women. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That's the promised blade, the hill we climb if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. For there is always the new dawn, excuse me, the new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it only we're brave enough to be it. As I conclude, what light are you becoming? It is my hope that our journey will include worshiping in spirit and truth so that we are transformed and more conformed to the image of Christ as we lament. Second, that we will be committed to relationships that hold painful truths, that heal and that restore. Third, that we will be transparent about our spiritual struggles with God and commit to being honest about the truths of the past and brave enough to commit to re reckoning with the sins of the past and to be a light in the struggle. And may we always remember to lean on our ancestors, our God, and our community for wisdom, strength, and hope for our journey. Thank you. You have been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu slash studio.